This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome back to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We have seen a wide range of scandals involving the banking industry, but what may be more staggering is that this activity continues. See the recent issues surrounding Wells Fargo. Many consider the rate-rigging LIBOR scandal to be the worst of them all. But again, what might surprise many of you is that some of the characteristics of what happened with that mess could still be in play today. Alexis Stenfors was one of the people in and around that period of time. Uh, He used to work at Merrill Lynch and ended up uh, being labeled as a rogue trader. He recounts what happened during that period in his new book, Barometer of Fear, an insider's account of rogue trading and the greatest banking scandal in history. Alexis is now a senior lecturer in economics and finance at the University of Portsmouth. Alexis, great to have you joining us today. Good morning. I I wanted to start off with your role now and and your teaching profession. uh, What do the students ask you about that period of time uh, when they come up to talk to you? Uh, about the road trading time, yes. yes. Uh, they don't really ask anything uh, because I think they're too embarrassed to ask. Uh, so I normally start off uh, the first lecture or the first seminar during uh, a new year. I, I give them a lecture and, and, and introduce myself and, and briefly go over the period. So it, it's a, sort of an icebreaker because once you've been labeled a road trader, which I have, uh, then it's um, it's such a big thing. So I think most people are really afraid to ask. So I normally have to, to break the ice myself. I saw an article uh, where you talked about the experiences and, and what you went through during that time. And, and it's interesting that it, it kind of alluded to the fact that you could be, and, and you haven't uh, to this point, but you could be tempted to go back. I don't think I'm tempted to go back. I think, uh, technically speaking, I, I could apply for a license again. Because okay. I got a five-year uh, ban from the industry, yep. which was lifted uh, a year and a half ago or something like that. So technically I could apply. It doesn't mean that they would let me. Uh, the regulators would still, could still say no. Right. But it's more the question of I'm still very interested in financial markets. Uh, that's what I teach. That's what I do research in. I write about it. Uh, it's more once you've been a trader for so many years, as I have. Uh, I don't think it's very difficult to let go completely. So I don't think I would like to go back. Okay. It's more the fact if people ask me, will you for certain never, ever try to go back? I can't, I can't say no. So that's, it's more like that. It, it, is it, and obviously with that life that you led um, and some of the descriptions you have in the book, is it to a degree like being a gambler and being addicted to it? Uh, addicted, yes. I think it's, for me at least, I was very addicted to risk-taking. And I took a lot of risk uh, within Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch was a big risk-taking bank at the time. And, and the market as a whole, as we all know, took way too much risk uh, yeah. in the run-up to the financial crisis and also sort of during the financial crisis. So I was very addicted to risk-taking. I don't think it was gambling. Uh, okay. I don't think trading and gambling is the same thing at all because you trading in general, you always try to to beat the market somehow, whereas gambling is more, you know, you, it's almost like roulette. 
which trading is not. So I think, yes, you're right. Uh, there is an addictive element to it, which is also why I'm very reluctant to consider, ever consider going back. And, I don't think it's good for me. And the, the greatest description of it, obviously, is part of the title of your book, but you talk about it early on, is the word fear. Uh, fear surrounding LIBOR itself and, and fear, I guess, surrounding the traders. There's a great line early on in the book. It says, it was fear that could be bought and sold, and that's what I did. Yeah, I think it's the, the title of the book probably has two meanings. One is the, the barometer of fear, which was coined by Greenspan, the former Fed chairman. Yep. So you could technically speaking, you could buy and sell the fear, which was exactly what I did, because I traded LIBOR-indexed derivatives most of the time, and they were sort of very linked to the fear people had about the global banking system. So I personally, or on behalf of the bank, betted on a worsening of the crisis. So the, the more the crisis, or the more severe it became, the more money I made on behalf of the bank, which is, of course, Morally, now looking back, that is very difficult to sort of to consider is this the right thing to do. So it also has an aspect that is, is very personal. And the fear that I talk about in the book is very much uh, becoming a road trader or being labeled a road trader or all of this also leads to a lot of fear because there are personal aspects that yeah. people that come up to you that say horrible things and, and justifiably so. Uh, and, and you have to deal, or I had to deal with my own guilt, and I still deal with my own guilt of, of having caused these losses. Uh, so there's a lot of fear as well from a personal perspective, and, not only LIBOR itself. And the impact that it had, you, and you talk about it on, on your family, on your wife, on your kids as well. Yes, of course. I think that's, that's uh, the, the really starting point of the book was you know, eight years ago when, when, when that happened. I, I wrote down a few sentences. On, on a hotel notepad, and, and I thought, well, I, one day I will want to write a book for my children. They were six and eight at the time, for my daughters, and to explain how it, what it felt like being a road trader, what it felt like being a trader as well for 15 years, and what it felt like afterwards, because I thought there was a lot of media reports about me, but I had written or said anything. I hadn't written or said anything. So it started off as a sort of a memoir to, to my daughters, and then gradually it became something much more sort of serious and, and, and sort of thought through. Alexis Stenfors is our guest. He is the author of the book Barometer of Fear. This is Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, if you could take, take the listeners through a little bit of that period when you first realized the trouble that, that you could potentially be in. And I found it interesting in laying it out, the conversation you had with one of your bosses and the fact that both of you were on vacation at the time and, and you realized it seemingly, I guess you started to realize what could be at play here. Yeah, I think I admitted to, to having mismarked my books, which is sort of overvaluing or cooking the books by $100 million. And the bizarre thing, or what I found scary as well, was that at the time when that happened, I didn't find that 100 million was a lot of money, which was how <laughs> detached I was from, from the environment as a whole or the society as a whole. 
So when I had the conversation, I admitted that. I was in India and he was in Switzerland. I realized that when he wished me, or he, he said that you should have told me earlier, and I apologized, and he wished me uh, just uh, have a good holiday, I, I realized that something is really wrong here, because if you hide $100 million, uh, which then became much more, uh, you, you, can't, you can't be on holiday. You have to fly back home. So I began to have doubts and, and sort of, I didn't trust my boss anymore, but it was more the whole scenario about Merrill Lynch, about the market, that I thought, well, I don't want to be judged within a boardroom of, of a bank. I want to, to, to be open about this. But, so I called a lawyer, and it sort of started from there. And, and it was followed by many, many months of, of paranoia and, and sort of a Kafkaesque situation. It's, uh, that's a great description because a hundred million dollars to everybody in the world is obviously a lot of money. Uh, you know, I guess to you at the time, it, it was to a degree like, like having dollar bills in your pocket. Well, I think that is something I tried to explain in the book as well, that this, uh, I traded derivatives on foreign exchange and, and from the amounts are so incredibly large. We are talking about billions and trillions. Yeah. So, so even if it doesn't really matter if you are paid a lot as a person, as, a, as an employee, uh, I was sort of juggling with so phenomenally large amounts and also expected to make a lot of money during that year. So from that perspective, 100 million didn't feel like a catastrophe. Right. But then the bizarre thing is when I told him, when I thought about it afterwards, I thought, this is absolutely mad. What have I done? You know, 100 million is so much money. And I, uh, and I didn't think about it. So what was, um, what was wrong surrounding LIBOR? I mean, I mean, we could probably take a half hour just on that alone. But as you look back at it, and you probably now can see a lot of the cracks in the system uh, that, that a lot of people really didn't realize were there, you know, several years ago. Yeah, I, I, the first thing I did when, when, I was, when this happened with Merrill Lynch, and I was, uh, yeah, I never went back to the office. So I went back to the office for, and an, uh, I had to do an interview, of course. I was, I was uh, interrogated. But during that time, this is just one or two months after the, the road trading scandal, I decided to do a PhD and applied to the university to study libel manipulation. That was the, the idea behind my PhD, because... I felt at the time, this is 2009, so this is three years before the scandal, that libel was not what people thought it was. Right. I was suspicious of manipulation, uh, not to the degree that we see now, of course. It, was, it wasn't that firm, but it was enough for me to think, okay, I want to, to do some research on this. I want to do academic research on what is libel, what should it be, why is it wrong? Because I had traded LIBOR derivatives for so many years, and, and, you know, I know half of the people have been on trial. Or, or, so that was really the starting point. What is the problem with it? Well, many problems. One was the, the fact that it was never a market. It was uh, decided by a few banks, a handful of banks or a dozen banks or a couple of dozen banks, depending on which currency it was. And it wasn't binding. There was no binding rule where they put in those LIBORs. And on top of that, the this process, the governance, was uh, conducted.
lobby, the BBA, yep. here in the UK. So, again, of course, a bank lobby would try to defend the banks, and the big banks were part of the panel. So there were so many conflicts of interest. And on top of that, of course, the, the biggest trading banks of LIBOR derivatives were also on the panel. Now, I wasn't on the panel because we were Merrill Lynch wasn't part of it. Right. But, but all my major counterparties were. And then, of course, LIBOR also is sort of a barometer of how good and sound the bank is perceived to be. So during the crisis, it was a signal to, to the market whether a bank was able to borrow money or wasn't able to borrow money. And that sort of also was, was something that disturbed me, or probably disturbed me more, the fact that I didn't think the LIBOR was correct at the, during the crisis. I thought it was way too low, uh, even though it was higher than before, it should have been a lot higher. And to me, that was sort of, well, if the LIBOR is manipulated by a lot, that means that central banks will uh, act on, on wrong information. So my theory at the time was that uh, the central banks, like the Fed, Bank of England, ECB, etc., that they reacted too late to the crisis right. in, in 2008, 2009. And, and from what I understand, uh, you, I, I guess from recordings that were involved in the, in the LIBOR case, that you were very close to being kind of linked to this and being a part of this from the outside, correct? Uh, yeah, I, I think that was... A, like the second part of why I wanted to write the book, because I realized after two or three, two years into my PhD, this was in, in 2011, right. I met a broker, so sort of an intermediary for a, a drink. And he told me that he had been, he didn't use the word manipulation, but he told me that he had helped a trader in, in uh, with a manipulative scheme. Right. And that was, of course, uh, Tom Hayes, who was then sentenced to 11 years in prison right. later on. And, and I felt really sick about this because I, I didn't know how close it was, even though, even though I knew it, was, it might go on and there was manipulation out there, it felt a little bit too close. And that is something I realized afterwards, that it was basically going on under my nose, if you like, yeah. and also by people that I traded with you know, billions of dollars every day. And, and some of these, I guess, have stayed in touch with you, correct? Some have, some have, but again, most, I think here I can relate to them as well, because when I was labeled a road trader, most people did not want to stay in touch with me. You sure. know, if, you are, if you are a banker or a trader, you don't want to be associated with a road trader. Right. So... I think likewise uh, for them, for those that uh, were somehow very closely linked to the LIBOR scandal, but also to the foreign exchange scandal that came a few years after, yep. they, I think they became pretty isolated. So, and I, also, I didn't want to get in touch with them because I thought, well, if you want to call me, then call me. So some have, yes, some have contacted me and we've had conversations, but I haven't actively you know, 
seeked out and, and want to have a conversation with them. You talk, really them. You, you talk a good bit about the culture surrounding this industry. And, and my question to you is, looking at it now from the outside and, and maybe still you know, talking to some of the people that are within the industry, uh, has that culture changed where there isn't this uh, this massive amount of pressure that is put on these uh, on these traders on a day to day basis, or is it still uh, to a degree like that? I think what has changed is the the regulation. There's been a lot of regulation uh, since since the scan since the crisis, but also since the the scandals unfolded. Okay. So. There are many compliance officers, many lawyers, many regulators are running around in the dealing rooms, which is very different. It didn't used to be like that. Back in the old days, I never met a financial regulator for 15 years. Right. So that is different. That is definitely different. So I think the pressure is still there to make money or to perform, but it's different. It's also the risk-taking uh, is, of course, more constrained by the, the rules, the new new regulations as well. So I don't think it's possible to take that amount of risk that I did on behalf of Merrill Lynch in today's environment, at least not in one of the big banks. So because of uh, the, the changes that you just alluded to and the regulation and, and the oversight, could a LIBOR scandal happen again? Probably in a different way. I don't think it's over. I think the LIBOR scandal might be over. Okay. But the, as we saw, there were also an FX scandal. So the largest market on the planet, the foreign exchange market, was also manipulated. Uh, and then we had the Istafix scandal. And then you had a gold scandal and a silver scandal. Silver. So all of these markets that were sort of over-the-counter uh, and very closely connected to, to what I traded have been sort of uh, been subject to scandals. Uh, I think it's definitely possible, but it will probably be in a different way. I think the regulation has done a lot to sort of force banks to 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 look after, look look out where could there be problems, what could the next problem be. But I don't think it's over. Which Not is at all. which is interesting because we we talk here in the United States, uh, and I mentioned at the top about the fact that that we will still see instances. Uh, of poor behavior by the banks pop up. I mentioned Wells Fargo and what they did around uh, the accounting scandal that that they went through. And a lot of people still believe, and obviously there's been talk about, you know, President Trump easing the, uh, breaking up the big banks, but potentially easing uh, kind of the regulation around big banks. And there's a concern here in the U.S. that that we could see another uh, kind of uh, financial crisis down the road because of uh, of the belief. Uh, looking at the American perspective and, and industry from from where you are, do you do you see that as a possibility? Uh, yeah, it depends. It depends on which area you look at. I think what I do research on now that is not directly related to the book yeah. is is high frequency trading and yeah. algorithm trading in in the foreign exchange market. So I don't bring it up in the book because. It's a fairly new thing in, in the foreign exchange market. Right. And, and there's been a, a, a trend towards uh, machines or robots from human beings. Yep. And, of course, these, uh, uh, these scandals in, in the foreign exchange market sort of also justifies the use of more machines because, obviously, humans have misbehaved. We know this. So, therefore, I think there's more pressure as well on banks to sort of make things more... Uh, computerized, if you wish. But 
when you look closer at the algorithms and the high frequency trading, there could also be misconduct there. So I think it's just shifting to new areas. And I don't think it's, it's, it's safe yet to say, oh, the scandals are over. It was only a few rotten apples. Yeah. The culture was bad in the old days. Now, now everything is clean. I think it's way too soon to do that. Alexis Stenfors is the author of the book, A Barometer of Fear. He joins us on the show. He is also a senior lecturer in economics and finance at the University of Portsmouth. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I would imagine that obviously one of the, the, the sobering thoughts, and we kind of alluded to it before, but I think it uh, it's a, a great time to bring it up, is the fact that people like Tom Hayes spending time in prison uh, for what they have done. Uh, I would imagine that your mind from time to time has ventured into that into that realm of what it would have been if if you had been one of those people that went to prison on this. Well, Yes, I mean, Tom Hayes was a big counterparty of mine. He was, was my biggest counterparty in the Japanese yen market, so we traded every day. <clears throat> he was a, a competitor, uh, and, and we traded against each other, not, not with each other. Yeah. Uh, but from a personal perspective, absolutely. I think it's, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's, what he's going through, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. Uh, now, I wasn't involved in libel manipulation, yep. and I was very much on the other side. But it, it doesn't make you know it doesn't make it feel easier because I, I had a road trading scandal, and I know the culture that existed at the time and how, how much of a gray zone everything was in, in not only about libel but also foreign exchange markets and risk taking. So uh, of course I feel very sorry for him, and and uh, yeah, I. I don't really know what to say because yeah. obviously we, you know, nobody would like to go to prison, and, and I, I, I don't walk around every day and say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky, I, you know, I've I managed to get away or something like that. I, I, I don't. But this uh, this is an industry that that truly is, and you mentioned risk taking. It there is an element in uh, of risk taking in this industry every day, and it's not something that it, that is going to go away. So if you look forward how many ever years you want to this piece to it is something that will remain correct yes and i don't think here is sort of coming back to your question about the u.s regulation about banks or splitting up the banks banks uh, will always take risk in in these markets because they they work with money yep. so i think it's different when we talk about stock markets where you can say well i have 1000 apple shares and i sell every single one. Uh, you can't do this with money. You can't square up your, your risk or your position completely when it comes to, to these instruments, uh, LIBOR index derivatives or foreign exchange, because banks, that's what they do. They do take risk, and they also are active in the money markets. So, so here again, I think it will always be. The, the issue will always be there. It's just a matter of how do the banks themselves how do they go about to to uh, to make sure this doesn't happen again? Alexis, greatly appreciate your time. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is a, a, a it is an intriguing story to go through, and certainly we wish you all the best with your work at the University of Portsmouth, and obviously all the best to your family and your, and your children as well. 
Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Alexis Denfors. Uh, it is, look, it is, an, as we said, it is deemed as one of the biggest scandals in the history of of the financial markets. And uh, obviously, uh, Alexis, <laughs> I, I'm sure that and even though he said he uh, uh, couldn't really put his finger on what he would say about jail, uh, but I think it's quite obvious from what he didn't say that uh, the thoughts of jail were certainly ones uh, that uh, he still has today and uh, obviously are, uh, are something that he has to deal with to a degree, uh, understanding uh, his link to Tom Hayes. Uh, and how uh, his role in that LIBOR scandal all played out. Uh, great book. It, it is available. The book, by the way, again, is Barometer of Fear, an insider's account of rogue trading and the greatest banking scandal in history. Alexis Stenfors uh, joining us on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.